Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Poldoyan. This week, I want to talk about bread. To make bread well, you need a solid understanding of fermentation. Chat with a bread baker, a winemaker, or a brewer, and chances are the topic of yeast will come up pretty early on. To discuss this, I'm linking up with my good friend, Drew Gimma. Drew is the co-chef of the James Beard-nominated restaurant Squabble. Prior to Squabble, Drew baked bread here in Houston at the innovative bar Better Luck Tomorrow and opened the neighborhood bakery Common Bond. I wanted to get Drew's perspective on the role of bread in modern American dining and hear how his style of baking changed from his years working in New York City, where he baked bread at the three Michelin-starred restaurant per se. Also, it would not be an episode of BTG without some booze. Drew loves beer, and I wanted to hear how his professional relationship to yeast and fermentation influences his preference in beer. So crack open a cold one as we get started with Drew chatting about his first bread job at a small town bakery in Connecticut. The only real training I got was I took a one-week course at King Arthur uh, Flower Company in Vermont. Um, And beyond that, it was just learning on the job. And if I'm being totally honest, like I did not make good bread. Like I look at pictures of loaves that I made back then. (laughs) uh, I'm really embarrassed to look at them. Oh, man. Um, And real Go ahead. Real quick, you mentioned that you went to King Arthur for a week to learn how to make bread. I only know them as, you know, a, a flour miller that they, they produce flour. They also have a culinary arts program of some sort, like bread college. Uh, they do. It's it's not like a training program. It's sort of it's more meant for like home bakers. They do some more advanced classes, um, but they're they're only like a week long. So like there's only so much you can learn. So I kind of did the intro to bread baking uh, class, I think is what it's called. Um with their head baker, whose name is Jeffrey Hamelman, who wrote this really great book um, called Bread. Uh, I forget what the rest of the title is, but it's like Bread Fundamentals of Bread Baking or something. And so I took that class and, you know, there's like, you do like some classroom work where you kind of like go over the basics of, of bread science and stuff like that. And they do some hands-on stuff. Um, and then the week's over, like before you know it. And so I definitely learned some stuff there. Um, but when I got to, when I was working at this bakery in Connecticut, um, I was just, I didn't, I get, I don't want to put it this way, but I didn't really care about bread. It was, it was very much just a job for me at that point. Um, and so, uh, I would just come in, I would make this product that looked okay to me. Um, but I wasn't at that point pushing myself in any way to make sure it was like perfect. You know, I was getting a lot of compliments on the bread that I was making. Um, but I didn't know if it was good. I wasn't, uh, at that point I wasn't really into food even, Um, So I wasn't like eating other people's bread or reading books and like seeing how other people were doing it. And you quickly moved from that to New York, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, So once again, still this at this point in my career, it is still just a job. And so Mm -hmm. for me, the move to New York uh, is based solely on the fact that I want to have a social life. Um, What I had realized uh, after four years of, of baking in Connecticut was that, you know, I was working all these weird hours. It didn't leave me much time to go out and see friends. Um, you know, before that I had, uh, you know, I was really into like going to like hardcore shows and stuff like that. Um, but with the weird hours that I was working, like that wasn't happening. I wasn't seeing my friends. And so I figured at the very least, uh, what I can do is take this career and move to New York and 
have some fun with it. You know, if I get off at two in the morning, I can still go hang out or I can still go do stuff. Like, um, and that was really incredible to me. So like, that was the main factor in me moving to New York. Uh, it wasn't, <laughs> you know, all, everyone always has these like, oh, like I want to go work at this place or that place. And I was just like, I don't know. I'd like to go get a drink after work. Like, that'd be nice. Um, That's fair. Well, you referenced these strange hours that you had to maintain as a baker. Walk us through, at least at that point in your life, or maybe in general, what the average shift is for a baker. Um, it's it's totally different everywhere you go. Um, mm. But I can, I can say that I've worked every different shift that you can imagine, you know, especially starting out, um, whether that's going in at midnight and leaving at, you know, maybe you have a short shift and you're leaving at eight in the morning, or maybe it's midnight to 10. Sometimes it's uh, three in the morning until, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, sometimes it's four o'clock in the afternoon until, you know, midnight or something like that. It's, it's all over the place and most bakeries operate uh, to some extent on a 24 hour schedule where, um, if they're a wholesale bakery, they're constantly making bread because that's just what it takes. You have early deliveries, you have later deliveries. The process of bread just takes a very long time. And so you have someone, you know, um, jumping forward a little bit. My job at Sullivan street bakery was, uh, all I did was mix in. Uh, so for my eight hour, 10 hour shift, for the most part, all I did was mix bread. I didn't shape it. I didn't bake it. All I did was mix bread. And so that was someone else's job to handle the dough that I made. Um, so baking's hard. Baking is a really uh, tough industry to make it in mentally, I feel like. You have to deal with it physically. There's the heat. There's uh, flour in your nose. And then there's just the mental aspect of feeling kind of disconnected from the world at times where you're operating totally separate from society where, uh, you know... You, you're waking up at, at midnight when everyone else is going to bed or, you know, you're going to bed at nine in the morning when everyone else is waking up or whatever. So that that's the Drew that I remember meeting back yes. in 20, I, th I guess it would have been 2014 that I met you, but that's the Drew I remember meeting the Drew that would go to bed at six in the evening because he had to get up at three or four in the morning. Um, and then in the middle of hanging out would abruptly leave to go feed his sourdough starter. That's the Drew that I, <laughs> that I first met. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, a common bond. The yeah. I don't remember if it was the first full year, but pretty close to it. Um, my shift started at at three in the morning. Um, yeah. So yeah, it meant going to bed very early. It meant you know Thanksgivings and holidays. Uh, I'm gonna t you know yeah I'm gonna step away for a second. I got to go feed my starters, and that's that's one of the things about bread is that it's it's constant. Even when like. Um, uh, per se would take a break for two weeks. Uh, it was our job as bread bakers to take that starter home, um, and feed it consistently throughout, throughout those two weeks. So like, you would, you would take the starter home with you from the restaurant and then feed it out of your apartment or wherever you were. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, bacon, bacon stuff. It, it's, it's one of those things where, um, it's a daily thing. Like there's, it's really hard to get, you can't get ahead on bread at all. You can't be like, well, if we make this really big batch of bread, then we don't have to make bread for three days. It's like, no, the, the product suffers, obviously, you know, every day that it's out. Um, and so you have to make it every single day, no matter how much you sell. And so um, that's kind of tough. No, for sure. There's, there, I feel as though there's two types of, you know, cooks out there. There are the people that are very intuitive, um, who cook based on feel. 
And then there are other people who get into the science and the more technical side of cooking. You know, you could argue that, you know, one group measures things and others season to taste. Um, and I'm curious within baking, it's in so many ways, it's a very precise form. You need to add a certain amount of a specific ingredient, um, but at the same time, it can drastically change based on the heat of your oven, just the overall humidity in the air, um, the feel of the dough in your hands. Do, do you feel like there's that dichotomy in baking? And if so, kind of like, where do you align within it? Well, I think, I think within baking, you have to be that person that relies on science relies on formulas and inconsistency and weighing everything out exactly the same way every time. It also helps you adjust on the fly. Like once you kind of understand what those ratios mean, um, you know, you can kind of play around with, you see a recipe online, you figure out the, the baker's percentage, um, mm -hmm. which is essentially the, the ratio of ingredients. Uh, and you can tweak that. You can um, increase the hydration or, you know, I think one thing that most people don't know is that for the most part, salt and yeast are going to be pretty constant as long as you're doing the same, uh, you're trying to achieve the same length of fermentation. So like salt is always going to be around 2%. You can kind of go up and down from there depending on what you want to do, but like it's never going to drop below like at least for me, like 1.8% or something like that. Uh, and yeast is always going to be in this kind of steady range where for me, most of the breads that I do, I'm looking for probably about two hours of bulk fermentation with a longer uh, cold fermentation overnight. So yeah, to go back to the, the original question that you're asking, like I think as far as bakers go, there's always, you always have to be that kind of science-based uh, person. You always have to rely on your knowledge of, of what uh, the ingredients are going, or the effect they're going to have on each other. Um, I think cooking is much different, but I think one of the things that really impresses me about um, Mark Clayton, my, my co-chef at Squabble, is that he thinks about uh, recipes in much the same way that I do as a baker, and that a lot of them are percentage-based, you know, um, and it's a good way to kind of scale up depending on how much of an ingredient you have. I think that's such a good way to approach food, and not being like a savory chef myself, I can't say for sure, but mm -hmm. I think... It's a really good thing for cooks to learn uh, to think in that way. Yes, any cook can like just throw some stuff together without weighing anything out and make something great. But like when you have a restaurant, to have that consistency in your formulas is really, really important that anyone can make that food. Um, and that's important because that means you don't have to be there every single day showing someone how to do something or tasting their food. You just say, read the recipe. And obviously there's... Yeah. experience but that takes some of the romance out of you know the the chef perception for a lot of consumers you know i think a lot of guests enjoy going to restaurants because they like the mystique or the uh, romance of a chef that's able to like taste something and identify that it needs a little bit of this and is arbitrarily able to add the right amount of a particular ingredient to make it that much better that's a huge part of what sells people on the idea of a whatever it is a celebrity chef no absolutely and i think that those people those chefs are, are incredibly talented and, and I guess that romance should, should remain. Um, but part of what makes their restaurants great is when those chefs can translate what they do to their cooks. You know, no chef wants to be, well, <laughs> I guess chefs do want to be in the restaurant all the time. That's part of what <laughs> makes you a chef. But, um, 
you know, when you want to go and open another place or something, like being able to translate what you do to your cooks, to your sous chefs. Um, if you can do that successfully, that means that, you know, you're, no one sees any loss in quality. I think that's one of the most disappointing things. Um, when you go to like a new restaurant and it's firing on all cylinders and the chef is there all the time and it's great. And then they, you know, spread themselves a little bit too thin, uh, and they're working on two or three different places and you go back and you're like, well, it just wasn't the same. Um, that's always really disappointing, but like when you see that, when you see a chef open three places and every place is still as consistent as ever, I think that's, for me, that's the most impressive, impressive thing in cooking is that they've learned how to translate what they do to their sous chefs. Their, their, you know, their vision is still, uh, executed on a daily basis. And, um, that's, that's not easy. That's very, very hard. So. And, and getting back to the idea of, you know, calculated cooking and, you know, really quantitative measurements and really thinking about the science behind the baking. Would you say that you learned that when you were in New York? Is that when all of that started to click for you? I probably learned that most at, at Sullivan Street Bakery. Hmm. Um, Sullivan Street Bakery is kind of the, the brainchild of Jim Leahy, who, you know, uh, if you've ever heard anything about No Need Bread, um, he was kind of the, the godfather of that. Like he, he made this recipe for the New York times or, um, that started that whole trend. Um, of you can make this really, really delicious bread at home. Um, and so I think when I started there, I'd always known, like, you know, always kind of geeked out a little bit on, on bread science and learning more about it. Um, but I think it's at Sullivan street is where I took that to a whole new level where when I was mixing, I was, taking the pH of dough, I was, you know, really like every single batch had to be dialed in perfectly. There wasn't ever like, oh, well, it's winter. So we mix it this, you know, with this amount of a van at this temperature, it was every single day you came in and you filled out your sheets and said, um, okay, my, my flower temperature is this, my ambient temperature is this, um, this is what I need my water temperature to be. Um, and so that was the first place where it was applied in like every, every day work. It wasn't just like a theory. It was, you need to do this um, or our bread's not going to be good. So, um, And you said your role there was just mixing, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, as I kind of gained a little bit more experience uh, towards the end of my shift, I would start doing some more shaping and um, I never really got to the baking part of it. Um, like I said, you know, with, with a production like that, that runs 24 hours a day, um, I don't remember how many employees there were at per shift, maybe like 10, um, which isn't that many, all things considered, um, you know, everything's hand-shaped, hand-mixed, well, not hand-mixed, but, you know, <laughs> um, everything's pulled out of the mixer by hand, everything's shaped by hand, everything's loaded into the, the, uh, the oven by hand. Um, but yeah, so mostly mixing there. And that's part of the reason I left is like, I wasn't really sure, um, what else I was going to learn at that point. Um, I think that much like in for savory cooks there, depending on what point in your career, it doesn't make sense to stay. Um, and I hope none of my cooks at Squabble <laughs> are hearing this, but you know, sometimes depending on what you're, you're going for, you've kind of gotten the experience that you need within a year and it's time to move on and like see a different thing and, and kind of build experience that way. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I felt like it was time. I mean, it was time to move on. 
um, I thought moving on to you know a Thomas Keller restaurant uh, seemed like a, a pretty good idea. Uh, at so you so you leave Sullivan Street Bakery and you go to work for Thomas Keller and mm-hmm. you went directly into Per Se. Technically, uh, the the bakery is part of Per Se. I am technically a Bouchon employee. Um, I always clarify that, but it's not really. I don't think the distinction matters. Um, but technically, I am getting paid by Bouchon. Um, but we are producing bread out of the Per Se kitchen for both Per Se and Bouchon. I would imagine that bread serves a different purpose in each of those locations. I mean, Per Se is a three Michelin starred restaurant. The meal is several hours in length, you know, whereas Bouchon is a little more casual, um, perhaps a little less precious. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I think it's I think it's casual, but like, you know, the techniques are all there. Um, but it's especially in, in that location. Uh, I worked in Columbus Circle. They're essentially in a mall. Um, and so Bouchon is really like kind of fast. I don't want to, it's not fast casual, but it's like the the notch above that where it's like you can sit down, but like you expect it to be fairly quick service. Um, you're just there to grab a sandwich, a really well-made pastry, and then, you know, a coffee and go on your way. Uh, a I would say a very small one. Um, it's like you said, it's not people don't. You're going to per se to have an experience to have this. Uh, you you know you're v- viewing this meal as a as a whole, not just like I went there to get this one dish. Um, you're there to kind of be wowed at every step of the you know nine course menu or whatever they're doing now is. Um, and bread is such a small part of that, um, and and that's okay like i totally get that like um i think that the things that people were most attracted to at per se were um our parker house rolls which were these just really soft fluffy covered in butter and salt uh rolls um and then our pretzels um you know we did these like soft pretzels uh they're super cute and like well designed um but what do you mean by well designed? Eh, just they're cute. <laughs> they they have this like nice uh, scoring on top. Um, they just look pretty. Like as, as with anything at a three Michelin star restaurant, they just need to <laughs> look pretty. Um, yeah. Is is the most important thing, and so um, I think that people were you know uh, kind of focused in on those two breads, and then anything else that we did. It was fine, but you never really saw people being like, wow, this bread's so great. And it's part of... Yeah, they're leaving like, talking about the oysters and pearls. They're not talking about the pretzel. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I totally get that. Like, if when I I had dined it, per se, a couple of times, can I honestly say that I didn't care about the bread? Um, <laughs> as as someone who loves bread, like, it wasn't, um, it wasn't super exciting. Um, and in the way that, like, everything else at that on that menu is sort of like, you know, here's a, here's a classic dish. Here's a memory that you have of this food. And uh, let's see how we can like change your perception of that dish. Um, the bread was just sort of like, eh, we should offer a bread course. Um, and it'll, it'll be well done. It'll look very pretty and it'll be served in a, in a really immaculate manner. Um, but overall it was still, it was just bread. And like, I don't know how much, bread I, I don't know like it's it's tough um 
I don't know how much bread belongs on a menu like that because of how how we eat bread. Um, I think having when you say super- we, you mean as in as Americans, the way we consume yeah. food yeah, that exactly. doesn't like, fit a marathon meal. This like dainty little bread, like the amount of work that goes into those breads. Like we would shape uh, almost a thousand pieces of these like less than fifty gram pieces of bread uh, a day. And how much work we put into those, uh, how much thought and care, um, just to have probably 80% of those go to waste was, was, it's silly. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's part of, you know, three Michelin star dining is that a lot of what you do is it, it will contribute in the end to like this really amazing product. But I think it's why you see a lot of these really high end chefs moving towards something more casual is like, do I really want to spend X amount of hours doing this tiny little thing that barely makes a difference in the dish, or do I, you know, focus my time on creating these really bold flavors and something that's a little bit more simple, um, but it's just as delicious. And that's that weird kind of difference between really fine dining and something where like you're getting this incredible food, but it's cheaper and it's in a more casual environment. Um, You know, I think that's um, something that a lot of chefs are moving towards today. So. I've had enough conversations with you to understand that sometimes the role of the baker is underappreciated. And at least in regards to the hierarchy of food, it seems as though the restaurant itself, in its either presentation of bread or in its use of bread, it can feel a little bit like an afterthought. Was that reflected in kind of the kitchen culture within the space? Um, To some extent, I I didn't feel like anyone you know, was disrespectful of, of my role in, in that restaurant or any of the baker's roles in that restaurant. Um, I think that everyone, especially at Perse and on that team, um, was really respectful for the most part. There's a lot of competitiveness for sure, uh, but everyone was really re- respectful of what each other did um, and how hard they were working to get it done. Um, but yeah, I mean, I almost don't even want to say that like bread's underappreciated, like I think that now that like I'm a partner in a business um, and even at Common Bond, when I was starting to see a little bit more, like finally getting to see like, you know, P&L statements and stuff like that. At the end of the day, like bread is not, (laughs) bread is not your breadwinner. It's not going to make you uh, a ton of money unless you're doing wholesale, unless you're doing like huge volume. Bread is not what's going to bring people to your restaurant. Um, it's not how you're going to make your money once they're there. Um, in fact, it's, you know, I, I think something that we think about at Squabble is that like, okay, we want to get, you know, bread into some people's bellies, but like, let's also not overwhelm them and serve them too much because then they won't want to eat all the other fantastic food that we have, you know? And so like, um, it's this, it's a strange thing as a bread baker. It's something I love doing and I love eating bread, but I also recognize that like at the end of the day, people don't just want to eat bread. Like that's, <laughs> I don't. A lot of times when I go out, I feel obligated to like get the bread on the menu or something, you know, especially if someone like knows, knows who I am and I'm there. Um, I feel like, well, I should probably have the bread even though I don't really (laughs) want to, Um, (laughs) you know? And so I totally get that. But, but yeah, in terms of like a restaurant, like I I never felt like I was underappreciated as a worker there. Um, You know, it's just sort of uh, kind of to go back to what we talked about where the hours are all over the place. Um, you feel really disconnected from, I think, the team overall, where, you know, we had four or five bakers and all of them would start at different hours. Um, 
and none of them, like you never work service in a restaurant as a bread baker because nothing can be cooked a la minute. It's, everything's done. You're ready for service. Um, the only difference, actually, I will say that per se, we did do two bakes during uh, a dinner service. So we'd do one to be ready when the first guest showed up, and then we would do another one for the like second seating of guests. Um, but once you're done with that, you go home. Um, it's not like you're hanging out with the cooks uh, after a menu meeting and trying to figure out what to do the next day. Like you always kind of that planning is already done in terms of bread baking. You've already started 48 hours in advance um, of your, you know, the next bake, I guess. You you mentioned earlier, uh, you referenced Common Bond, and that's the job that took you from Thomas Keller's restaurant group to Houston, Texas. So yep. you left, you know, the very vibrant restaurant scene of New York City to come to Houston and... I don't think you had ever been to Houston before. I think you visited once prior to actually moving out here, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, um, <clears throat> I had visited uh, one time before, um, to decide whether or not, uh, I wanted to move here. Um, and you know, <laughs> I saw Houston and it was, it was during March. So the weather was beautiful. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll move down here. Why not? Um, you know, and at the end of the day, like, uh, the main reason I decided to do it was I felt like what well, it it was the next step in my career. Um, I had spent three years at Per Se. I learned a lot in terms of like how a restaurant functions. I had become you know Sue Baker there, and so um, and they have a really great leadership program and, and training you in management and stuff like that. Um, but at the end of the day, like I just didn't feel like I was going to advance myself in, in the technique of bread baking. Um, you were so limited with what you could do uh, in that space. It, like I said, it always had to be very dainty, it had to be very pretty. Mm -hmm. And that was fun for a while, but like I wanted to get back to, you know, bigger sourdough loaves and I wanted to get into different kinds of fermentation and longer fermentation. Um, you know, a lot of the bread that we made there, you know, I'd get in in the morning and the chef would be like, I want this bread tonight for the cheese course and you'd be like okay i have nothing prepared <laughs> how do i make this yeah. bread in in eight hours um and make it something special that people are going to be excited about and so that's that's not easy and that was fun that was really great uh, how do you do that how do you make <laughs> bread in eight hours that normally requires 24 to 48 uh you hope you have some extra sourdough left over um you hope you have some extra yeah pre-ferment and then you you know maybe run down the whole foods and pick up some different ingredients um but it was, it was a test. It was a challenge, um, but it wasn't the kind of bread that I was like super excited about. And I totally get why they, you know, I remember bringing up like, Hey, why don't we start doing like larger sourdough loaves and we just serve slices of it. And they're like, no, and I, you know, I was kind of like, well, why not? And, you know, they explained to me why, and I totally understand how that didn't fit their restaurant. Um, you know, it, the aesthetic of it is totally different. It doesn't look right. But to me, it was like, well, yeah, but this is a better product, you know, like serving a slice of this, like slightly warmed up with some really good butter. Obviously, they have really great butter there. Um, it'd be so much more enjoyable than like this, you know, tiny little hard piece of bread that has already dried out, even though we made it two hours ago. And so, yeah, it was like this opportunity to do my own bread, to test myself. You know, I think that when people talk about what makes whether it's bagels or pizza, any glutinous product in New York better, they immediately reference the water. 
Uh, it's something about the water. In, in your move from bread baking in New York City to bread baking in Houston, did you notice any physiological changes to the dough that you were working with, either because of water or some other factor, whether it was weather or access to flowers? Was there something that made that move different? Uh, for the most part, no. I would say um, the general myth about... Uh, New York water is what makes its bagel so good. That's that's total bullshit. It's <laughs> it's it's not true. Um, New York City has some of the best tap water in the country. It is really pristine and wonderful and perfect for bread baking. Um, but that's not what makes a good bagel. Um, Real quick, pizza. just quick aside though, when you say good for bread baking, do you mean high mineral content, low mineral content? Generally, what you're looking for is uh, kind of a medium hardness um i forget exactly what the ppm that you're looking for is but like you want some minerality in there and that's important anywhere you're baking um the minerals help fermentation so if your water is too soft you won't see very much fermentation um if your water is too hard you'll see too much fermentation and so having water and honestly most my guess is that most any place that tests their water is going to be Somewhere right there in that that range that's good for bread baking. And so Houston's water is fine. I think it may be, you know what, I think it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say sometimes it's a little bit more active, but I think that's just the heat down here. That's, That's more the issue. So geographically, no major difference in terms of water. Uh, Was there any other geographical factor that affected your bread baking? I would say the only thing is that I tend to find that I have to... You know, recipes that I had uh, put together in New York, I had to drop the hydration percentage a couple percent um, just because it is more humid down here. Uh, I found that the the, uh, the flour didn't accept quite as much water as it would have in New York um, because it's a much drier climate up there. But that's it. Honestly, there really wasn't a huge learning curve. It was just sort of like, oh, that's too much water. I'll take some of it out. And that was it. Very anticlimactic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So the bread that you made at Common Bond, I remember loving it. But looking back on that experience, um, what breads are you most proud of having baked there? I think the first bread that I made out of there, um, or the first bread that I really was like testing, uh, was our sunflower rye. Um, And that was, it's still one of my favorite breads to this day that I've ever made. Um, I think that I kind of took this idea from another bakery in Brooklyn um, and tried to reverse engineer it and and get it not exactly like theirs um but just like i wanted to get similar flavor profiles and texture out of out of that bread um and that was one that i was like super proud when i i felt like i finally nailed it um and then honestly like just the community that we found when uh you know we started common bond with everyone that you know none of us None of the, the management staff had like lived here, save for Roy. Um, mm-hmm. And so just the community that we found over that first like year and a half um, that we were a part of Common Bond um, was was really special. Like those, those people that I met um, are still friends today. Um, and I really am thankful for that, that, you know, people connected, especially people in the food 
uh, industry here connected with what we were doing at Common Bond, even though, if I'm being totally honest, I think we were a little bit pretentious about it <laughs> at times. And the fact that people really responded and, and recognized what we were trying to do at Common Bond was uh, really thankful for. We should say that after you left Common Bond, you went to work uh, at BLT. And how early on in the conversation, when it came to opening up with the same ownership with Bobby and Justin, uh, how early on did you guys have the conversation about Squabble and what the vision would be for that restaurant? You know, the reason I took that job at BLT um, was simply because I wanted to work with Bobby and Justin. Um, there was no promise of anything. You know, Justin kind of came to me and said, hey, do you want to make some bread uh, for this new bar that we're opening? And I said, yeah, absolutely. But like, you know, my my ulterior motive was always how do I prove myself to these these people that I really respect um, in hopes that we can do something a little bit more grand than me just making, uh, you know, bread at a bar, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, but Squabble didn't really, Squabble came together very, very quickly. Um, I think Justin and I specifically had maybe started talking maybe a year and a half into my working at, at BLT um, about a pizza restaurant, actually. Um because that's what I've always wanted to do and I still want to do at some point, uh, some sort of pizza place. Um, so we had started talking and looking at some places um, when uh, they finally decided someone called them up and said, hey, the Southern Goods place is open. Why don't you guys take a look at it? Uh, and I think we all kind of went in not expecting to want to do anything with it. But when we looked at it, we looked at you know the rent and, and everything that needed to be done to get that place up and running. Um, it was really like a 36 hour kind of conversation. Uh, it was, okay, let's take this place. You know, it's not going to be a pizza place. This isn't the right space for a pizza place. So what do we want to do? Well, we're going to do some sort of restaurant. Um, no offense, Drew, but <laughs> you're not going to be the chef of a restaurant. And I said, absolutely. I don't want to be. Um, so we decided who else to call in. Uh, and we called up Mark Clayton, who had worked with Justin at Oxart, was Oxart's only sous chef ever. Um, and so, and he, you know, pretty quickly was like, yeah, I'm in. And that's how Squabble started. There was no, this is the concept. This is, uh, the idea. This is the menu. It was just sort of like, let's do a restaurant with these people and we'll figure it out from there. Um, and then it obviously evolved over the next six months or so while Squabble was being built out. But, mm -hmm. um, there were, <laughs> before the space was leased, there was no real talk of Squabble, hmm. um, which is why we ended up with the name Squabble. We just, <laughs> it was like the last minute thing where like, we need to decide on a name. Bobby and Justin are arguing over it and finally, you know, Bobby suggests Squabble. So that's funny. I remember yeah. it, it did come together very short notice because I had left town to go to Germany and I was gone for all of maybe 10 days and in that span of time, you guys had found the space, decided upon the space, and decided you were going to open a restaurant in that space. It, yeah. it all came together super, super quickly. Yeah, it was. There was. It was sort of like, oh, let's go check this place out, and you know, we had already checked out uh, two or three other spaces, and I was sort of like, oh, like this is a good exercise for me in learning, you know, like what we're looking for and um, and stuff like that. And so when we looked at this space, I was like, oh, it's probably just another kind of 
to me, I felt like Bobby was sort of like doing this uh, like training moment with me where it's sort of like we walk through the space, we talk about what needs to be fixed, um, run through the numbers and stuff like that. So, but when we walked out of the space, it was like, why don't we go sit down and talk about this? Um, and that's when I knew it was like going to be uh, something a little bit different. <laughs> it was going to be real. So. And I mean, the restaurant's been super successful. I mean, you guys got a James Beard nomination for best new restaurant, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, still on the on the long list. Um, you know, I was hoping they would actually do the announcements during all this because they wanted something to pay pay attention to the finalist announcements. <laughs> but unfortunately, they delayed that. But yeah, like that's that's huge. Um, I don't think any of us really, you know, we've worked our asses off at Squabble, put in a lot of hours and a lot of you know, pretty much all of our lives into, into that place in this first year. Um, but I still did not expect to, to get that. And so that was, that really made my, my whole year. That's awesome. Yeah. So the bread program at Squabble is really important. I mean, it's an integral part to the cuisine. It has its own real estate on the menu. Um, and I know those are some of the dishes that I'm the biggest fan of, but are there a couple on the menu that you are really excited about that you think are very kind of indicative of the overall kind of program that's been created at Squabble? Well, yeah, I think there's there's a couple of dishes that have been on the menu since we opened um, that haven't changed or changed much. Um, I think one of those is the, uh, the Dutch baby pancake. Um, I think that, uh, you know, that bread in particular um, is not something I had ever made before Squabble. Uh, it was just sort of an idea that um, I think Bobby, Justin, and Terry had kind of relayed this sort of, uh, this idea of a dish that they had had in Japan. Um, and we're like, something like this should be on the menu. I think it's really interesting. It's not something you've seen. Uh, you definitely haven't seen in Houston before. And so we should do something like that. And so I took this kind of vague idea um, and, you know, did some research and worked my way through it and eventually came up with, you know, the Dutch baby. Um, and, you know, the first iteration, I think we topped with uh, some like creamy ricotta cheese that, you know, we spiced with like lemon zest and pepper and stuff like that, and then added uh, some uh, calamansi puree. Um, but the current iteration with um, whatever jam we happen to have on hand, um, which it's been a month now since we've <laughs> served the Dutch baby. So if I'm being honest, I forget exactly which <laughs> jam that is. I, I think um, it was a Satsuma marmalade for a while with some ham on it, right? We had, a, we had a newer one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyways, and then yeah, some like country ham, uh, some basil. Um, I really love that dish. I love how uh, I think that it's one of the the more creative and unique dishes on our menu. Um, that is something that you just can't get anywhere else. And like that's, I think that's what that's what is going to keep me coming back to a restaurant is what items do they have that no one else has? You know, occasionally there'll be a place where you know we can argue all day about who has the best burger, or who has you know the best chicken. And, and doing those things really well is important, but I think that um, what really excites me is like, we do this and not many other people in America do it. And, and I think it's a really great dish. Um, and the other thing is, you know, uh, is, you know, my part of it is a, a smaller contribution to the, the overall dish, um, but is the, uh, the muscle toast, which uh, I think has been the, I think one of my favorite dishes in the entire city, like hands down. Yeah, and and the one dish I like, it, it can be a little bit divisive. We do find some people that are like, you know, it's 
it's not exactly what I expected, but for the most part, like everyone loves that dish. And I think it surprised us how much people love that dish. And so, um, you know, the construction of that dish is I make a, uh, a Rouge de Bordeaux sourdough. Um, Rouge de Bordeaux is an heirloom wheat that comes from Barton Springs. Uh, and it kind of has this interesting sort of cinnamon, uh, floral flavor to it. Um, and so we make a sourdough out of that, cut it. We like toast it really, really hard on the flat top. Uh, and then top it with uh, mussels marinated in escabeche, um, a bonito aioli, and then uh, some like dill parsley and other herbs. Uh, and it's like this kind of, it's one of the, I think it's what a lot of Mark's cooking and Squabble's cooking overall is, is that it's like deceptively, it's simple, but it's deceptively complex. Um, like so much has gone into everything like, the the sachet for the the mussels or the beans sorry sachet for the beans the escabeche liquid um so much so much depth of flavor in this simple looking dish and it's i think it's why people respond so well to it is that it's incredibly flavorful for how simple it looks and it's not a combination of flavors that i think about very often i don't i don't think that mussels and beans are something that i like immediately associate in my mind no and i think yeah i think it's just kind of like playful way of looking at cooking where it's sort of like, oh, these beans are kind of the same size as mussels. Like, why don't we put them together? You know, yeah. and like, uh, even if it doesn't make sense, it's also like, you know, Mark and I both really love beans. And it's like, well, why don't we put the two together, you know? Um, and and I think it works really well. The texture uh, of those beans with the mussels, like it just works, everything works really well. The, one of the other signature dishes on the menu, and it's much further down, it's actually one of the desserts, is the pandemie, which is like French toast on steroids. It's um, the most delicious piece of French toast with a scoop of ice cream on top. And like a creme anglaise, would you say? Or Yeah, it's an anglaise. Yeah. Um, but that to me is like one of the most like decadent, delicious little desserts out there. Is that pandemie used for anything else? So yeah, we use that for other things. Um, we use it for, what else we use it for? We use it for the tartine. Uh, it's currently on the menu, but will probably come off by the time we reopen. But, um, we use it for a tartine of cucumbers, uh, where we do some like, you know, we toast one side of it, put some yogurt butter down, um, some cucumbers, seasoning, and then uh, some smoked trout rope. Um, we get a fair amount of use of that out of that pan to me. Um, we also use it for the thing that's it's not on the menu, but we do offer kids grilled cheese. Uh, if someone really wants one. Oh, that sounds uh, great. It's really good. <laughs> it's, it's really, really good. Um, um, <laughs> it's actually probably better that most people don't know about it because I think they would order The, the secret's often. out now. <laughs> um, we use it for that. Um, but that is the main, we sell a lot of dessert bread. So for the most part that, uh, that pandemic is used mostly for that. Hmm. So it seems as if like, there's a very specific stage of, uh, quarantining that involves bread baking because my Instagram is like popping right now with all these loaves of bread. Now, Drew, you bake bread professionally, like, like that's what you do. Uh, so I'm curious, like what your advice would be or what your thoughts are in general about all these like amateur bakers uh i think it's great um i think it's hard to uh express to people how good bread is fresh out of the oven you know as a baker like i've always wanted to work in a place where that's how i could serve bread 
it's impossible. It's, it's impossible to do um, unless people are willing to wait, you know, like 20 or 30 minutes for their bread. Um, but like a baguette fresh out of the oven, 25, 30 minutes where it's still sort of warm, but it's not like steaming when you cut into it is it's, it's my favorite meal. Like that and some butter or some like tomato soup or something like that is my favorite meal. And so I think that when people can bake at home and taste, even if it's not perfect bread, um, obviously there's, you know, I feel like the concepts of bread are simple, but it just takes a lot of practice to get it right. So even if like you don't make the best bread in the world, um, being able to eat it fresh out of the oven uh, is going to make it taste like the best bread in the world. Um, so I'm all for it. I'm all for people experimenting and baking right now. I think it's one of those things that like, uh, you know, it's good to get your hands dirty and, you know, most people don't have stand mixers around, so they're mixing by hand. Um, and so it's, it's a fun thing for, you know, to have your kids do as well is, um, teach them how to make bread. Even if it doesn't stick, like, you know, they're going to have some fun. It's like playing with Play-Doh. Um, what advice would you give to home bakers or what advice have you given out to home bakers over the course of this? Um, I mean, one thing I, I try to ask people to do is, um, get a scale, get it like they're $20 or $15. You can get a scale. It's going to make your life so much easier when you're doing all this. Um, like I personally don't own any measuring cups or teaspoons and tablespoons and stuff like that. Like I only have scales. Um, and I think it just, it's going to make for a more consistent product. It's going to make you know that you're following your, like also the other thing is like, I don't follow recipes that don't have weights. Um, if I'm like looking up a new recipe online and I'm trying to find something, um, I immediately skip past any sort of volume measurement because to me, they, I don't know, it's just, it's too amateurish. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to, yeah. but like, you know, I think like Serious Eats does like really good. Um, if you want to look up some like basic bread recipes, Serious Eats always does it in, in, uh, in weight. So does King Arthur, uh, their website, a lot of what they do is in weight, um, it's just such an easier way to understand um, what you're doing. And also to, if you want to increase, um, you know, if this thing makes, or if this recipe makes two loaves to make it up to four loaves is super easy. Um, just times everything by two. Um, and so that's, that's my biggest recommendation. The other one is just, it's really tricky because it, it just comes from experience, but like, don't let the time that's listed in the recipe be the determining factor for you. Um, depending on the temperature of your, your house, your apartment, whatever, um, your fermentation time is going to be totally different. And so like, I always try to tell people to have a warm spot in their home to proof their bread. Um, whether that's in their oven with like the light on is a really good trick to, to getting some like, um, uh, like a warm place in their home. Um, cause I think most people, especially in Houston with the AC, uh, probably have their homes a little bit too cold for proofing bread or fermenting bread. Uh, generally you should be in like a 73, 72 to 75 degree range. And I would assume most people keep their homes a little bit cooler than that. And so, um, I think monitoring temperature, um, is the most important thing and not rushing anything, uh, I think the biggest thing I've seen from people like posting pictures of their bread at home is that they just haven't let it ferment enough. Like it looks like the dough was fine. Everything was good. They baked it well. 
they just didn't let it go long enough. And like, I think you got to be patient when it comes to breaking, baking bread. Always try to buy instant yeast. Um, I think like active dry is probably the most common, but I think most grocery stores sell instant yeast. Just buy instant yeast. Um, and you don't have to do the thing uh, where with active dry, you have to like put it in warm water and let it bloom. Um, I think that instant yeast is just so much easier to use. You just add it to the flour or water or whatever. It doesn't really matter when, um, as long as you hydrate it. Um, the other recommendation, like I said earlier, is like temperature. Just pay attention to temperature. Um, try to get it somewhere warm. Uh, and then the other thing is like, don't, I don't know, don't stress out about it. It's, <laughs> it's just bread. And even if it doesn't turn out like perfect, like I said, you're still going to enjoy having bread fresh from the oven. Um, and those are the most important things. You, you talked earlier uh, when we were discussing per se uh, that just good bread with really high quality butter goes a long way. Um, or are there any other like simple things that people can have with their bread to elevate the experience? Um, literally anything that you can spread on a piece of bread, anything that's spreadable is going to be good. Um, so whatever that is for you that you like. Um, like I said, I have this really distinct connection and memory of eating like a spicy tomato bisque with a baguette fresh out of the oven. Um, and that's one of the first things I think about. Like I love eating um, bread with soup. Uh, I know that's not very popular as we head into like the Houston summer, but just dipping bread into soup, especially like a creamy kind of soup is my favorite thing. Uh, so maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's gravy or um, pasta sauce or like anything that you can spread on bread. It's going to be good. <laughs> avocado. I feel like I love yeah. avocado toast. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, you season that you right. You millennial. It's, it's so, you stinking it's millennial. so delicious. Oh, <laughs> right? As yeah, long as, sure. like, yeah, it's salty, it's fresh, it's fatty. I think that's that's the most important thing. Well, this program is called By the Glass. And we've talked a lot about fermentation. And we have not talked about uh, your favorite fermented beverage, which is beer. I should say that I worked at a wine bar for a very long period of time and drew was one of our most consistent guests who came in all the time but never drank wine only drank beer this is this <laughs> call me out here all right this is very true yeah you're 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 a man of very specific taste there was one of maybe like three or four beers that you would actually consume yeah it's uh it's my it's my favorite uh alcoholic beverage i love i love beer why do you love beer um well, I think it's, <laughs> it goes into why I love bread. I mean, it's a very uh, similar kind of process. It's, it's, you know, everyone always says it's liquid bread. And I think that what really gets me excited is when I taste a beer and it reminds me very specifically of like yeast and bread. Those are my favorite beers. It's like, I don't like stouts or IPA, like hoppier beers. Like I just want a beer that tastes like grains and fermentation and yeast. Like that's that's what really gets me excited. So, what are your like two or three go tos? Uh, like something like a saison dupont, like a really classic uh, beer like that, um, is one of my favorites. It's like bubbly and um, yeasty, and it just it drinks so well, and um, that's one of my favorites. And then I really just love, <laughs> as you can attest to, I just I, I want to drink a rise dark Kolsch uh, like every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just like a very clean but yeasty kind of sweet beer um, that i love yeah 
Big thanks to Drew for taking the time to chat and extol the virtues of Reisdorf Kolsch here on the podcast. If you're listening to this episode in early April, then you can go to Squabble and actually buy a loaf of that pandemie that Drew and I were talking about. Uh, they have it available for sale. They're also selling bread flour and other pantry goods. So go out there and support them and support this podcast by giving it a rating and subscribing wherever you get your podcast. That can be on Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple. Thank you again for listening to another episode of By the Glass, and we will see you next week.